Hey, everybody, it's Jules. Okay, so do this for me. Google the strongest man in recorded history, and the name Paul Anderson will show up. And he was like super crazy strong. He lifted 6,270 pounds with his back, could hit a nail through a two-inch board with his fist, got Guinness World Records and Olympic gold medals to prove it. But let me tell you about Paul Anderson. Yeah, you know, he was physically strong, but he used that strength to help young men at their weakest point. And how did he do that? Well, Paul and his wife, Glenda, started the Paul Anderson Youth Home in Valdea, Georgia, just a little bit south of Macon. And after his death in 1994, Glenda and their daughter, Paula, continuing, continued on to build on Paul's considerable legacy. And now they are with me for the next Jewel Show podcast. And I appreciate it, Paula and Glenda, joining us. We're happy to be here this morning. Thank you for inviting us. All right. So the ministry started 58 years ago. Take us back to where it all began. I mean, 58 to it, years. That, to that where like, it all began. You've that, got to have a pretty good memory. I'm 77, so uh, let me think. Well, it was let a couple think. of minutes ago, right? 58 <laughs> years. Oh, when I met Paul in uh, 59, I had just graduated from high school. He was nine years my, my senior. And he had a an dream. An older man. An older man. Man. Yeah. Miss Glenda. A, a, scandalous. A cool, sexy older man. <laughs> First time I saw him in my, uh, my daddy told me he had asked his, his permission to ask me out. And he drove up into our yard in this blue Cadillac convertible with his, this open neck shirt, tanned, hairy chest. And I thought, ooh, he, <laughs> he wants to ask me out. This is going to be interesting. But um, uh, I, was, I love that you gave me the description because I'm just now picturing a man pulling up to pick up my daughter. And I'd be like, now what now? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was an interesting time. And we dated for three months and got married um, three months later. So he was a man that didn't wait around. No, he didn't fool around. He asked me about three weeks after we started dating. <laughs> and so, you said yes. And I said yes, yes. <laughs> it was kind of one of those magical things. Well, okay, when you when I go over his accomplishments, 6,270 pounds with his back, he could hit a nail through a two-inch board. I mean, at that point, was he already starting to do that? Did he, like, bench press you? No, no. <laughs> no, he, um, he had a dream. He had, by that time, he won the Olympics in 56. I met him in 59. And uh, by that time, he had already accomplished going to Russia, you know, that was a big deal. He was on the first team to go behind the Iron Curtain. Well, and I was going to say, now do a little bit of history for the listener out there that's like, oh, okay, you go to Russia. Like, that's not what you did back then. You didn't just hop a plane. And- no, you didn't. And he was on the first team to do so. And, of course, they were expecting a weightlifter to look like their kind of guy. Paul gets off the plane and they say, who is this fat guy you're bringing over here? This is serious stuff here. And it was kind of... um a, a war at that time. You know our relationship with Russia. So when he got on stage to lift, and he lifted a great deal of weight more than the mm-hmm. Russian, they all laughed at him. I said, put 40 more pounds on. And, of course, he lifted it and beat the Russian records considerably. It was It's wonderful to watch on the old black-and-white film. There was a stunning look and then the hats went in the air and everybody started screaming, he's a wonder of nature. I think the word is chudo parody, meaning he's a wonder of nature. And uh, they wanted him to stay there and marry a girl in Russia. Uh, I'm <laughs> really? glad he didn't. Um, but it was those were important times politically yeah. as well as in the sport world. Because back then, I mean, we were expected to go into war any day. That's right. That's exactly and, right. And, and I mean, I remember my parents telling me living in fear that the nuclear bomb was going to go. That's, you're exactly right. And so this was an important... To bridge those relationships. Yes, it was. And so after that, of course, um, he came home and did, he went, he, he did continue to travel around the world, went through the Middle East we just have so many beautiful pieces of memorabilia hmm. telling of that trip. Um, but back to when I met Paul, 
with the hairy chest and the right with the hairy chest okay. and go the, back to that and, that, and the, and that the blue Cadillac convertible that, <laughs> that that looked pretty with the brown chest you know <laughs> did he have flowing hair I need no, to, I need a picture he had curly of, hair though okay he had okay. curly hair but he was just a real southern gentleman he was a kind man uh, <clears throat> he could speak with authority but he also had the heart of um just a tender, gentle man, and I uh, was very loving and very caring of other people. And as he was serving as goodwill ambassador for the State Department, he spoke in what we, some of you are, most of you are much too young to remember, but there was a place called Alto here in Georgia. And so he was speaking there and saw young boys mixed with hardened criminals. And I think that's when the Lord really touched his heart that he could make a difference. He saw how they respected strength. And so his desire became, how can I make a difference in the lives of young men like this? That was where the seed was planted. Of what can I do? This is my platform, so where can I go with yes. this? How can I use what God's given me? Because, I mean, so because Paul, I mean, he grew up in Toccoa, Georgia, which yeah. is up in the mountains. Uh, and for God to take a, a small country boy and, and put him on the national stage, I mean, what an incredible ride. Absolutely. And, of course, you know, the story at the Olympics was he became ill. And on the third try, he went back to his room and he asked the Lord. He said, he said I haven't been in touch with you like I should, Father. But if you'll help me get this weight overhead, I'll serve you the rest of my life. Hmm. And he did. He got the weight overhead. He won the Olympics. He broke world records. And he came home, and he said for a while, he um, made a movie in Hollywood. He did nightclub acts and that sort of thing, but it was not fulfilling to mm. him. Well, and, and the neat thing is there were so many uh, so many things that were against him. Growing up um, in the country in, in Tacoa, you know, struggling financially, and then having a childhood disease yes. that should have stopped him being able to do what he could. But, but God showed but up. But God. That's but God, right. that, that's the, the neatest thing is that like, yeah, you can see all this, what the world would say, like, no, 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 no. But, but because God intervened in his life, he was able to glorify God. Absolutely. Through this weights, because it's much more than him picking up all these weights. It was. There's much more. There was much more to Paul Anderson than weightlifting. However, we always believed that God gave him that strength mm. to bring glory and honor to the Father and to use it for good in this world, to make a difference. It, it was his vehicle to use. We were able to maybe perhaps draw attention to what we were doing with his name, but he was a hard, hard worker. Mm -hmm. And the only way he knew to support the home was to go out and do what his thing was. You talked about driving a nail through a board. With his fist. Not a, not, not a hammer, everybody. No, his not fist. a hammer. With his, actually, it was with his flat hand. He put on, for years he didn't use anything because he thought people would think he had a piece of metal or something. But the nail went back through his hand one time. So from then oh, on, he said. why did you give me that visual? <laughs> I want to go back to him in the convertible, not, not that picture. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So he um, started folding a handkerchief and he would drive the nail through a two-inch board, lift men on a table, all the heavier men in the audience. Um, but the most important thing he would do was give his testimony and he always ended it with, if I, the world's strongest man, cannot get through one day without Jesus Christ, how can you? And if you've been to the park in Tacoa, you've seen that around his testimony is around the fountain where there's the life-size bronze of him lifting weights. Praise God that it's out there in public. Yeah. So that was what he did for many years perhaps one of the hardest working men you would ever know. He would come in, fill up the car with fuel, head out again. Um, one year he spoke over 500 times a year. Wow. But just as he was a wonderful uh, father figure to our young men, he was a wonderful father to our daughter. Now, all that time he was gone, she never really remembers her daddy not being there because when he came home, she count. was the most important thing in his life to make sure that he was spending time with her all the time. Well, she would be his secretary. 
Well, and I was going to say, and Glenda, before we started recording, we both said, okay, Paula, you're talking as well. This is not going to be just right. Glenda That's and I, right. the two chatters, and then Paula's just nodding her head, which you are doing really well. She's nodding your head, agreeing with your mom with everything. But but Paula, you grew up um, with your dad being and, and doing all of these feats. Um, but then but then we, you were talking about it, and we touched on it. I want to go back to that moment where God um, opened his, his heart and his eyes um, to what was going on, and that's these juveniles serving time with hardened criminals. Explain that to me. I think he saw these young boys. Um, Alto was a small prison, um, actually not far from Tacoa. Okay. Um, at that time, it was on our way to Atlanta. We since have an interstate now, but um, and so he spoke there occasionally for the um, game and fish department. He served with them here in the state of Georgia uh, as a goodwill ambassador. And so when I met Paul in 1959, one of the first things we discussed was his love and interest in helping young men. That time he was kind of seeking the way. And though we looked around in Tacoa, we already had Tacoa Falls, a nonprofit organization there. So we just began to pray and look, and he was invited to Vidalia, Georgia, to open a grocery store, to do his act, to draw people, Hmm. to open a new grocery store by the name of Piggly Wiggly Southern. It was I know me some Piggly Wiggly now. Yeah, this was a little different because it was owned by a gentleman. Actually, the Rockefellers owned it. They'd sent a man down to kind of be a troubleshooter, close it up. He fell in love with South Georgia, asked to buy interest into it, and he became the president of the company. He also became an incorporator with Paul and me to establish the Paul Anderson Youth Home. So he was our wonderful benefactor in that um, everyone knew him, so he gave us credibility. Well, and, and so you, you, you see the need, but what, why, why start a youth home? What did you find that that would be the solution? We believed that there were, uh, and Paul preached on this quite a bit, that fathers had abdicated their responsibility and their place in the family and that young men had no male, strong male leadership. I think that's still true today. Yes. Uh, I see it every day with so many of our young men who have several sets of parents or no parents, or one is weak and one is strong, and that's the reason they come uh, into our care. But he felt that with the strength that he had, he could be a leader. And he would tell our young men, I am not your buddy. I will be your friend. I don't want to take the place of your father, but I will fill that role to help take care of you and to love you. And the way to do that is to have a youth home where they could come. That's what we, we felt. It was just real clear to us. Now, we were young. I was not yet 20. He was 27. Um, soon to be 28 at that time. Now, has your daughter Paula entered the world? Oh, no. no. This is way before. Way before. Way before. My precious angel here. So you were almost, so you were 20-ish, and you were like, okay, let's start a youth home. Let's, what a wild ride. We really were that naive. We really were. (laughs) We said, we're just going to start a youth home. And so we mentioned it to the sheriff in Tombs County, uh, where he had gone to open the grocery store. We spent the night, met some people, and he said, I'd like to help you do this. And I guess that was the impetus. We hung around Vidalia. We stayed in a a motel. Paul went out working, speaking, and I was in the motel, and the sheriff called us one night and said, I have two girls whose mother is selling them into prostitution. Can you help me? Girls? We were thinking about boys, but we had named our home a youth home to cover both boys and girls. So we took another motel room. I took girls in my room, and we let the courts in the state of Georgia, particularly in the Atlanta area, know what we were doing. Now, prior to that, I can tell you an interesting story. 
more than what you've already told me? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's one of those. This is a wild ride. I mean, when you accepted that first date. It's a little wilder. I mean, that first date with Paul, you never knew what that was going to take you. No, I had no idea. But it has, uh, it's been a wonderful journey, uh, bittersweet oftentimes. But before we opened the home, after we knew in Vidalia, that's probably what we were going to do. My husband had this wonderful idea for him. I didn't feel it was so wonderful, but he wanted to ride a bicycle from Vidalia, Georgia, to Father Flanagan's and announced that we were going to open a boy's home. Father Flanagan's in Omaha, Nebraska, was the most well-known children's home anywhere in the nation. So he was going to ride his bicycle all the way to Nebraska. He was going to ride a bicycle from Vidalia to Omaha, Nebraska, to publicize the fact that we were going to open a boy's home. Well, not many people really cared when it was all over. Truett Cathy who became one of our dear friends and supporters. Which, let's t- I mean, you know, Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A. You can thank the, the good biscuit. The whole- <laughs> didn't have Chick-fil-A Chick- then. We had hamburgers. <laughs> so he came up behind us on that trip and said his story was, I saw this elephant riding a bicycle. <laughs> and I invited him to come to our dwarf house in Hapeville and have a hamburger. So... We went by there, and he gave us our first contribution ever for $25 to the Paul Anderson Youth Home. That was the only check we got on the whole trip. (laughs) So I'm 19 years old at that time, very insecure, driving this van behind Paul riding a bicycle that says, Paul Anderson, world's strongest man in big red letters. It's just the two of us. And so we make that venture. Took us about three and a half, four weeks. And then we come back to Vidalia to start the home. And that's when the sheriff called and said, have these two girls. So I took those in one motel room, as I said. Uh, Paul got another room. And before long, we were getting calls from Atlanta. Uh, DeKalb County first. And it just took off. The need. The need for this. The need was great then, greater today than it's ever been in the in the uh, almost sixty years I've been doing this. And let me let me I, I want to know, uh, Paula, what was it like growing up in a youth home? I mean, because you were there right, right with your parents. Sixty six, Paula was born, and she lived right with us in the house. Boys then lived with us in the house. It was it's my normal. I mean, <laughs> everything else is not normal. I mean, I love you know as you've met you've met my husband Edward. We run a summer camp, and that's my Athens comp- Y camp. Yeah, it's, Falls, it's yeah. comfortable because I'm surrounded by a bunch of guys, sweaty guys, and a lot of activity and grass cutting all the time and you eat in a dining hall so that's like my comfort zone so that's normal you're, you're used to your family table having 20 or so yeah. people with you it's normal so anything else is is abnormal to me so it's it's my happy spot it's where I'm like the pig and slop there that's where I, <laughs> I, I, I little that's, southern <laughs> that's my happy place well and, and Paula explain to us if the youth home wasn't there what would happen to these kids a lot of them would, unfortunately, because our youth home works with older teenage boys, a lot of other homes will not work with older boys because, in their opinion, they think they're too far gone or they're too seriously, their problems are too serious. So they normally would go right into an adult prison, which and, is... And then tell me the ages. When you say an adult prison, they would go normally into an adult prison. How, how what are we talking well, about? Well, we, we work with boys up to like 21, 22. Mm-hmm. And we take on, the youngest we want to take is 16. Okay. And when you say an adult prison, um, I, I imagine the answer, but I want to hear, why is that a wrong thing? Why? Because we don't feel like that they really get rehabilitated. And the, our main purpose at, at, for being at the home is that we want to tell them about Jesus Christ. We feel like that's the only thing that's going to really change their heart. And because you're talking 16 to 21 year old, or then being in prison with hard criminals, right? That's right. Learning, and so they're going to learn um, big boy That's right. crime. That's right. So they're going to go maybe from a one tier to the next step of of a life of crime. That's right. 
That's right. And we, we also want to rehabilitate the whole family. And we feel like when the boys are at the home, a lot of times the families become to, come to know the Lord and, and really see the transformation in their sons. And so when the boys graduate from the home, when they return to their family, the whole family unit is is healed or is on the road to being healed because mm-hmm. what they've learned at the home, not just we have a SACS accredited high school on the on the facility, so they catch up in school. A lot of them, even if they're 18, they might be kind of in the ninth grade or eighth grade because they've fallen so behind. Mm-hmm. So the home is able to put them in an accelerated program where they're caught up so they can catch up academically. They can be ready to go into the military or they can go into college or technical school. But the main thing is we want to tell them about Jesus because yeah. we know if their heart doesn't change that they're just going to graduate and go right back to what they were doing. But praise the Lord, our recidivism rate is the best in the state. And that's only because of Jesus. That's because we know the answer. We've got the key to success, and it's yeah. Jesus, and that's what we share with our boys. And, and so you, you all are changing the trajectory of their lives. Uh, where they were heading down a life of crime, you're changing it permanently. That's right. It is our desire with God's help that that happens. We, the the unique part of of that particular situation, Jules, is that when we interview a boy, we tell them we have Bible study every day. We also require memory work. You see, that's the key. Scripture memory. Scripture memory. Um, I don't know of any other program that does that, but we require them. And if they are not willing to do that, then we say, this is not the place for you. Now, are they Christians? Absolutely not. But they don't want to go to jail either. Mm -hmm. So we have scripture memory, and our thinking is this. When God called us, we knew that our mission was to introduce them to Jesus Christ. We believe he's the only healer for abuse, for the drug problems we have in our country today, for all of the pain and the hurt these young people have already gone through. And they have to know him, but they have to know him in a personal relationship. Just hearing about Christ is is not going to do it. We have to introduce them. We cannot do that. We know we can't do that. We can make them do memory work. If that memory work is up here in their in their minds, the Holy Spirit, it's not our job to save them. That's God's work. But the Holy Spirit can carry that from their head to their heart, and that is our prayer. That's the only thing that will make the difference. And so we're doing what we believe God called us to do is to be seed planters. But we have a little more power than the average situation because if they stay in our program, they have to do the memory work. The memory work is there whether they're aware of it or not. So we have many of them that call back and say, I I had a a young boy many years ago that was stationed in Alaska. With the military? Mm Mm-hmm. And he said, I was very close to getting into a relationship that was not appropriate with someone that was married. And he said... The scripture memory work that I had got, had gotten to know there kept pounding me, <sighs> and I knew that this was the wrong thing, mm-hmm. and I moved away from it. But I love to hear those stories yeah. because God's using it at the right time to remind them of who they are and that sin is sin. Right. And now, will they be 100%? In today's world, the temptations are so great, I... I tell them on their graduate, we have a a graduation ceremony for each boy. And I tell them on that day, the enemy's right out there at the gate. He's waiting on you. He he doesn't like that he might lose you. He's going to be waiting to tempt you immediately. Hmm. But remember, we all stumble. But because of Christ, we can get up again. Don't buy the lie that you've, you've fallen and there's no hope. Remember that his blood covers you, and you can get up again time and time again. We're all sinners. Is there, like, a common thing that the most of those kids are in for? Drugs today. Without a doubt. It's the wow. abuse of drugs. We have counselors. We have drug counselors. That's kind of the common theme. 
I would tell you it's the common theme, but you can take it back a notch. And where I believe the enemy's attack started coming many years ago, he's broken up families. The break of break up of families impacts the children, no matter how many times people justify, well, it's better that we get out of this and not argue and that we uh, just clean it up where he can have a relationship with both of us. I don't believe the data would prove that. I think if you feel like you can't live together all your life, live together until you get that child grown. Because that's the common thing. Most of these kids are coming from broken homes. They're coming from broken homes, and they take it upon themselves that it's their fault. Wow. This divorce did became about because of my problems or they don't love me enough to stay together, or you, there's numbers of reasons. But ultimately, a broken family impacts many people. You know, you hear the comment constantly, well, this is not hurting anybody but me. It's my business. I can do what I want to do, and that is so far from the truth. It so hurts it's a ripple everyone. effect of it what the parents have done. Is. And and when society wants to lock up and throw away the keys um, on these young men who have committed a crime or they're on the pathway to commit a crime because of of, um, substance abuse, you introduce them to Jesus, the one who has not given up on them. And when you say, okay, everybody else has given up on you and the society is telling you this and you say, okay, but Jesus has not given up on you. What what does that do to these young men? Um, The one thing about our home and I, I have such sweet memories of, of these boys that we had were really like my big brothers, and I still have really close relationships with boys that were there when I was a baby growing up, and we have, the boys are our family, and we still, through the grace of God, still have that same atmosphere. We're not an institution, and a lot of homes like us would have bars on the windows and big locks on the doors and all. We don't have that. We are a family, and we try to teach them and model for them what a family looks like. And we have staff who lives on campus and we eat meals with the boys. We have Christmas with the boys. I mean, they are our family. And I think that they see that stability and that real love, unconditional love, maybe for the first time in their life. And a lot of them have said when they graduate that that was the best Christmas they ever had, even though they were away from their home and they were in a youth home. That was really the sweetest Christmas that they ever had because they felt so loved. And um, I think we try to model for them through our families um, who are there with their own children. And like my mom lives there with her husband, Stephen. I mean, they go over and have all their meals at the dining hall. I mean, we're just a big family. And I think the boys see that and they feel the love. They feel the security when they graduate. They know they can call home. They'll call Mm -hmm. and ask for Glenda or they'll call and ask for Eddie Burris. I mean, there's lots of staff that they want to call home and talk to and they come home and visit. So it is like um, a family and it it is a family. Well, I I follow on the Paul Anderson Youth Home on social media. And from time to time, you all post pictures of these young men. And I'll be honest, like they, they look like sweet boys. <laughs> and, and so I'm curious, like, do you see a physical transformation yes. when they walk in the door the first day and then the last day they walk out? Yes. We take a picture the first day they come. And it is rather amazing to look at the picture when they graduate. Even, do they see the difference? Yes, they do see the difference. Many of them. Um it's just so different today. Uh, society is so different today. Um, our environment is so different. I, as I look back and remember the days when boys stole bicycles and played hooky, we're talking about serious stuff today. Many of our young men have committed felonies. And the judge sees something in them that he thinks they can be redeemed. And those are the ones that are often sent to us, or he tells the parents about our home. But there is that looking in the mirror. I have one boy that said recently, when I look in the mirror at myself today, because they have a sports program. They have to run a mile every morning. Wow. They work. One of Paul's things was teach them to work. Whether they have a college education or not, if you work, 
People are going to hire you if you do a good job. So we emphasize that. But they will come in there sometimes overweight, sometimes underweight. And when they start working out and looking at themselves in the mirror, they like what they see. They like who they've become. It's it's quite interesting, Jules, to look um, a young man in the eye and see there's it's empty. You know it's empty. There's nothing there. They haven't been taught anything about integrity, character, honesty, all of those wonderful characteristics we want our children to have. And yet to see in time, we usually keep a, a young man a year to 14 months, something like that, to see their change, to, to see one come in with that spirit but eventually become a leader. And they want to help the other boys. They actually are better at helping each other than we are at helping them once you get those leaders among them. And, and for them to realize that God loves me and he has a plan for my life. That's exactly I'm right. not hopeless. I no. have hope in God. No. You know, and, and to say like, okay, you don't I'm, have to live this life. You can. No, and then I'm a special creation. Mm-hmm. There's nobody else like me. He made me to be me. Mm-hmm. How do you all work with the family? Because I know, you know, what affects one family member affects them all. When we when our young men come in, the family has to commit to come to church once a month for visits. They get to visit their son once a month. So they come early, go to church, <clears throat> and then they're able to take their son off campus after they've been there for a period of time for lunch and for about three to four hours. And everybody has to accept this. So the... the, the that's, that's the name of the game. The resident the has to accept the scripture memorization Right, and chapel, and then the parents have to accept this is what their responsibility this is, is. What you, yes, if your son's going to be here, you've got to buy in. You've got to be a support to us, and many times they learn more about parenting so that those children that are at home mm-hmm. don't have to be placed in an institution or a home, because they. If you ask me, what is the greatest problem in the world today? where young people are concerned, I would tell you that I think parenting skills are lost. I think young people today, maybe back, go back even into the 70s, I think we got home from wars. We wanted to give our children everything we didn't have. We spoiled them. We um, allowed them to do things that we would never have been allowed to do. We forgot that if you spare the rod, you spoil the child. And um, when I get children into the home today that talk to their parents sitting in an interview as though they're talking to someone that's not human, it is a terrible thing to behold. You know, my nature is I would like to correct them right in that moment and tell them grits or groceries, as we say in the South, but it takes a while. They do learn authority. They do learn who to respect almost immediately. They know who means business. They know one of the things that messes up parenting is we threaten our children. If you do this, this is the consequence. Well, maybe not this time. We don't follow through. We do not keep our word. If we don't keep our word, how can they trust us? How can they trust us on anything? We tell them we're going to do this, but we don't. So how does that give them security in their parents when their parents don't keep their word about other things? And I don't think that's brought out enough in teaching parenting that God's word says your yes means yes and your no means no. If he says it, that's good enough for me. Right. And, and so do you find that families are shocked that they are there, uh, sitting there across the table from you, getting their child accepted into a youth home? I think they are. I think sometimes they don't recognize why they're there. I, th- I believe that parents think oftentimes they've done the best they can do. Um, I've given them all this great stuff. That's so exactly. Why are you doing this? Yeah. 
And they don't want all that great stuff. They want that parent to spend time with them. They want that parent to listen to them. They want someone to hear what their pain is. They're not, if you don't listen to them about the mundane things in their life, they're not going to bring to you the serious things in their life. But you know what they're going to do? They're going to go find a peer that does the same things that they do wrongly, and they will have no one giving them any guidance. Well, and, and Paul and Glenda, what would you say to that parent that would, that would be like, that's great, I'm glad you do that, but that would never happen to me and my family and my child. They would never do all that. Well, I can tell you <clears throat> when I was growing up and probably still to this day, and I'm 52, no. that, when, that my mom and dad both would say that, you know, Paula's really a good girl, but, you know, that's today and she's a child you know they would always they would always say that that you know tomorrow I might do something I shouldn't and they would never they would never take my side like if I was in school if I got in trouble they would always want to hear the teacher's side and they always knew that I was a child and I think that's important when you're raising children that you trust them but you do keep in your mind that they're still growing and that they're still children so I think that's important that these parents know that these kids needed that guidance and that that's what the home is going to give them at this point if they come to the home. There's so much naivete. They, in today's world, if you really want to be a good parent, you better know what's on their phone, if they have a phone, and when they have a phone. You better know who their friends are. You better have them to the house. You better see what they're doing and where they're going. <clears throat> and this business, excuse me, <clears throat> of that's mine, that's my room, that's private, is a bunch of bunk. They live in your house. They're your child. They put their feet under your table. You are the parent. You're responsible. You be the parent. They are crying out for you to be the parent. They want you to tell them. Yes and no. If you bring them up, I, I believe this with all my heart, Jules. I believe that if we're the parent we ought to be that first five years, if we are, key word, you'll hear it at the youth home many times, consistency. If you are consistent, if your yes means yes and your no means no, that doesn't mean that you aren't flexible, that you don't say to your child, I'm sorry, I didn't do that right. Forgive me. I, I want to back that up a little bit. I don't mean that kind of thing. I don't mean harshness. I mean being dependable. You tell them you're going to be there at 3, you're going to be there at 3. They don't need to worry that you might not show up, that you're not dependable. If you tell them you're going to do something with them, then do that unless there's an emergency. But if you say, no, you're not going to hang with this person. I see there's a problem there then they're not going to hang with that person. If they do, there are consequences. And there are many consequences. I mean, you don't have to beat a child to find out what they love to do and what to take away from them. And how to reason with them. It's not just hollering at them. I think you, if you can establish a rapport where you're communicating from the time they come into the world, you communicate with that child, you listen There'll be times you want to scream and jump up and down and holler, but you don't. You listen. You take it with calmness, although your heart and your mind's thinking, "How, Lord, how do I handle this? So it sounds like, yes, it's that this youth home is for um, young, young men, but it's also for the family units. It there. is very much for the family unit. We pray that we can help them understand how to better parent because so many of our Young men have younger brothers and sisters at home. And if we can do the job we need to do with this young man, maybe they'll do a better job with those that are still at home. Well, and, and Paula and Glenda, what would you say that, that, that parents who, who get their, their sons or, or their young daughters are um, aging out of the house and they think, okay, that's great, but I've messed up. I, 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 it's too far gone. Um, I already raised them. That's a, that's a good question, yet a very difficult one, but I believe what I would do, and I say this if you listen on the telephone, there's a recording, that you would go to that child and say, I haven't done what I should do. As I've come to know the Lord and as I've grown in His Word, I see that I messed up. I, I really 
did some things that I wish I hadn't done with you, and I ask your forgiveness. But I want to say to you, there's a better way. And if you will allow me, I'm going to try to do this a better way. And, and talk to that person about where, that child, about where you think you've messed up and show them a better way for their own sake, for their future. I think you could establish by that time an adult relationship. My daughter is my very best friend in the world. I think you raise your own best friend. Um, if you have a daughter in particular with a, with a mother and a daughter. But I think you can establish at that time you're no longer their buddy, but you are their friend. And if you have had a good relationship at any time, even if you haven't, I think if a child can see integrity and honesty. It, they're maybe, never too gone. It, it's never it's too late. Never too, it's not too late ever with Jesus. That's right. With our Heavenly Father, he forgives us. Time and time and time and time, there's no end to it. Mm -hmm. So if we love the way he wants us to love unconditionally, we may have to walk them through some things that's going to be ugly. They may do, you know, they may choose to go live with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and we know that isn't God's best. But we may have to love them through that until we can help them. I don't think... If we haven't done what we should have done, how can we expect them to know? So I think that's going to be a pray, a much praying time of how, and they have to see a change in us too. Because if we haven't done what we should have done, we're probably not living the way we should live. So we have to get the board out of our own eye so that it be our husbands or our children can see that we're a changed person, hmm. that only the Holy Spirit could have done it. We couldn't have done it in our flesh. Well, and Glenda, I think you answered my question that I was going to say, and, and it sounds like, because um, I was going to ask you, is if um, somebody um, had a teen that was struggling right now, what would you say to them? But it, it sounds like if I'm hearing it right, it, go to yourself first. Yes. Look at your own heart. Look at your own heart. Ask the Lord to help you clean up all that junk. And he will. And he can. And... That way, when others see you and they see what God has done in your life, it's, it's a witness. It's, it's as clear as anything of God working. Well, and I know you all have been doing this ministry for, um, for a minute now. You know, <laughs> a couple of minutes. A few minutes. A few minutes, maybe 58 <laughs> years worth of minutes. But what, what's the biggest change you all have seen in a, in a and a, a boy and a young man um and and is there one that maybe comes to your mind well there are a lot i'm sure but 58 years you worth of that it. one you've been you've witnessed it from beginning to now well i guess the one i use so often is one that's very close to me there are many that i could use but um i had a father this has probably been 30 years ago now call me and say, my son's in jail. I'm tired. He's been in jail several times. He's living on the streets, and I don't know what to do with him anymore. He's going to jail unless I can. I mean, he's going to jail, a prison, if I don't find an alternative. And I said, well, I'd looked at his, all of his information, psychological, and I said, uh, sir, we maybe can help your son, but we can't challenge him academically. It was extremely bright. And I said, he's college material, and I'm not sure that we can prepare him. He was a very wise man. I don't know how his son got so off track. I do know. I know the family, and I do know that there was much going on with another child, and there, there was a lot of um, too busy to go to ball games, too busy to do some of the things this child needed, the, the young man he was bringing to me. He said, I don't really care whether he ever goes to college or not. I want him to be a man of integrity. And right now, I feel like he's lost. There's some funniness to this story that I, uh, as I got to know the young man later, 
he he could embellish a story very well. I was in jail. I called Glenda. She wasn't there. I didn't have a pencil. They told me I had to write the number down. I had to dig a pencil out of the trash can, write it on the wall, and he goes into this long story about why I wouldn't answer the phone. I was out shopping for shoes. <laughs> But eventually, um, I did talk to him. We brought him to the home, and the day they brought him to the home, he screamed at his parents, now, are you happy now? You're finally done with me. And he had been a challenge. He was, as I said, he was brilliant. That makes it a little more difficult sometimes. So he uh, became a part of our family and um, was not nearly the problem I thought he was going to be. I, I think he um, had to do some extra work on occasion. Uh, when I say extra work, I won't go into all the things we do as consequences, but um, it's pretty tough. And um, he ended up finishing our program as a leader, uh, went to college, um, got his came back and worked for us, got his master's degree uh, while he was working for us, and today is owner of a large food chain store and um, probably multi-million dollar a year operation. Gives to the home every month a very, very generous check serves on our board, and is one of the finest young men I've ever known. Godly father, godly husband, knows Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and is a giver, not a taker. Paul often described our young men, are you going to be a giver or are you going to be a taker? He's a giver. And yet he faced probably about 20 years in jail for breaking, and he had several felonies. Um, but he bought in. He was bright. He bought in. It didn't happen immediately. It, some of it went on into college with us, but we were so close that he called home every time there was a problem, and we were able to work through it. He's just one. There's, you know, I've got a young man that... Um, was abusing his mother under the influence of drugs. He's now an attorney today and very close to his family, um, lives near them in the north, um, accomplishing good father. Um, then I've got those that are blue-collar workers that are doing well. Uh, I, don't, I don't judge success by how much money they're making. I judge success by the kind of father and husband they are. And we've got a lot of them out there that are doing well. We're not 100%. Wish we were. My prayer is that we'll see every one of them in heaven. Um, just as Jesus prayed that God would let him have those that he had given him in Matthew. That's what we pray. And we pray they'll be miserable until they come to live for Jesus. Well, and you know what I love is that when I asked you all that question, it was a very difficult question because there's so many lives have been impacted by the Paul Anderson Youth Home, and that's awesome. That's a great legacy. And it's a great problem to have when I say, okay, just just tell me one, just tell me one, and you have to filter through like, you know, 58 years of it. And so the ministry, like we've been talking about, it's been going, over, going on for over 50 years. What's the vision that God's laying on your heart for the next 50? Obviously, none of us probably will be here, but... We, we don't know. We're restructuring somewhat now because we think that we've grown to a point that not just one person can be a COO. They, we're, we're looking at breaking it into two parts where I will be the gatekeeper um, if there's problems, and when I can no longer do that, Paula will. Um, we have a granddaughter that wants to do the work too. So, you know, it would be lovely if the family could be apart as long as possible to keep it as pure as possible. It's easy, everybody's got a dream, but we believe God called us to do one thing, and that's to plant the Word, His Word, the Holy Bible, 
in the hearts of these young men. We can't put it in their heart, but we can put it in their mind. And so that always needs to be at the forefront. If we ever have to deviate from who we are because of finances, because of pressure from the world, that we believe God's Word to be true, and that's how we will live. Uh, We do not take state or federal funding. I want to make that clear so that we are free to to teach people about who Jesus Christ is. The truth. The truth. The truth. The, the how you can get the, um, the clean up how your life. How you can have, how, have eternity. Freedom. Right, and have freedom from addiction and freedom right. from a life of crime. That's right. Well, you know, something that, that just is on my heart is that isn't that amazing that we are all here today um, talking about a ministry because um, a man who passed away because in 94, yeah. over 20 years ago, answered um, God's call. God's call. And worked and gave his life for that call. Right. Right. Because because he was there and he, he was willing to be used by God. And that's <laughs> and that's the legacy. You know, there's um you think about the legacy, it's not the Guinness World Record. It's not the gold medals no. that he won in the Olympics. It's not how much weight he could lift. It the legacy is this that we're all sitting around a table talking about a man that Gave his life. That's exactly right. He um, gave every day of his life to working to try to keep the home going. It's been um, it's been a financial challenge for all these fifty eight years, and yet I think that's God's plan. God's plan to keep us on our knees. You you can get too comfortable in ministry. And I think I don't complain about that at all. I think God has a plan. I think he's ahead of us and he's got our back. And um, as long as we're true to the vision, um, that's why I think it's so important that Paula stay active and that if any of our grandchildren want to be, they can be. And our board, we have a wonderful board of, of um, directors and it is by their direction that they want to keep the family involved. So our trustees now are um, taking part, coming to our campus, and I think that makes us only stronger. So um, it's an exciting work. I, I, I tell you, often I see miracles that some pastors never have the blessing and opportunity of seeing the transformation and you you see them come in angry and upset and frustrated and mad at the world and then you see that tendered and then one day they're a leader and they work with you not against you well and you all have um bright um, um, plans for the future with um with for instance a vocational school you all have started Yes, um, and, and, and helping these um, young men become leaders in our society, in our churches, in our families, yes. and be the men that God um, created them to be. That's our goal. <laughs> All right, so give us the, the website for the Paul Anderson um, Youth Home. So if somebody's listening, they have a troubled teen, or if they want to be a part of what God's doing there. It's dot org, which is Paul Anderson Youth Home. And they could also put in Paul Anderson Youth Home. It's in Vidalia, which is home of the Sweet Onions. You can remember that, but it's org. Well, hey, I appreciate y'all coming in and sharing and um, and inspiring all of us, you know, to to maybe reevaluate how we're parenting and um, and to answer the call that God puts on all of our hearts for our lives. Thank you for having us. It's been our joy.